How exactly are we supposed to do what we just confessed in song? I'm talking about that line in the hymn that says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. How do we live in such a way that we boast, we glory only in the cross? Well, the Apostle Paul teaches us in his letter to the Corinthians that we do this by seeing all of life through the lens of the cross. This is how we learn to boast only in the death of Christ our God. This is how we learn to think Christianly and not culturally. This is how we learn to walk in wisdom in a world that is hostile to Christ. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, it is the wisdom of the cross that ought to inform and guide the life of every disciple. And so every step of the way, from the moment of our conversion till the day we die or Jesus returns, the cross informs and reminds us that we are in Christ, that Jesus is Lord, that we belong to Him. And what counts in every situation is that we glorify Him by trusting and obeying His Word. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. No matter where God has placed us, no matter what our station in life may be, we are called to remain with God. Paul tells us, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And this evening, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 40, as Paul continues to apply that same truth to those who are single. So please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will look at verses 25 to 40. 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray together. Father, would you please open our eyes by the power of your Spirit so that we can see the glory of what Christ has accomplished for us. We pray that we would see it and delight in your Word and be filled with hope. Teach us now to set our minds on things above so that we might be faithful to follow Christ and not be ashamed of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I can't say for sure, but I think, I think, I might be the only pastor in the UAE on the eve of Valentine's Day preaching a sermon on the benefits of singleness. You're welcome. But friends, I think this passage is a good test for our hearts to see what we truly love and cherish. It's a good test to see whether our thoughts and feelings line up more with culture on the subject of singleness or whether they conform to the mind of Christ. It's a good test to see whether our priorities and passions are shaped by a desire to please Christ or to please ourselves. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul makes the case, he makes this case that the Christian's chief aim is to acknowledge the lordship of Christ and to walk in the obedience of faith. That is what counts in every situation. So whether you are married to a believer or whether you are in a mixed marriage where one spouse has come to faith and one hasn't, whether you are divorced because your unbelieving spouse has left you, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you are slave or free, whether you drive your Mercedes to work or whether you ride your camel, doesn't matter. Uh, whatever condition you are in, we are called to acknowledge that our state has been ordained by the Lord and we must live our Christian lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. Now, why is that? Well, Paul tells us because we are not our own. Brothers and sisters, we are Christians and we belong to our Savior who is worthy of our worship. And so Paul's general rule of thumb is this. You can glorify God wherever you are 
and in whatever state you are. Paul is not against change, but he wants us to carefully consider whether such a change would be pleasing to God or not. Now, how do we judge that? Well, we judge that using the Scriptures. God has given us the mind of Christ, and we can understand the things of God because He has given us His Spirit. Now, the Corinthians had written to Paul asking him questions about marriage and sex and divorce, and Paul goes on to answer those questions. That's what chapter 7 is all about. But they also had questions about men and women who had never been married but were betrothed or engaged to be married. Well, what about them, they asked. What about these people? What does remaining with God look like for them? How should they think about singleness and marriage? And so Paul in this passage addresses these specific questions, and he applies the wisdom of the cross to these questions. And there are four lessons we can learn from this passage, four lessons. And the first one is this, it is good to remain single. And that's not surprising, coming from Paul. We, we learned about this earlier. It is good to remain single. Paul has already commended singleness in verse 6 and verse 7. Uh, he says, I wish that all were single as, as I am, uh, but I realize that each has his gift from the Lord. God has gifted different people differently. But now he, he returns to that topic and he affirms singleness once again. He returns to the goodness of singleness because he has been asked a particular question. Look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. That word that is translated as betrothed is the Greek word parthenos, which means virgins. Some of your translations will say that. And the reason the ESV translators chose betrothed is largely because of the context. Paul has already spoken about the unmarried and widows in verse 8. Uh, we saw how this word married in verse 11 could refer to a woman who has been divorced. And here he seems to be addressing something new, which is why he begins with the words, now concerning. So this is a new topic. Also, when you look at the passage as a whole, it seems like Paul is talking to people who are approaching marriage for the first time, and they need to be instructed about what to expect. And so as he has done before, Paul says, I have no command from the Lord, meaning Jesus did not address this question specifically, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. That phrase, by the Lord's mercy, by Jesus' mercy, that phrase is key to receiving what Paul is saying. You see, Paul is Jesus' apostle. He was called by His saving mercy, and he was given this task to deliver the words of the Spirit to this church. And that's why these words are trustworthy. They are authoritative and true. And therefore, what Paul says here is given to us to equip us to help us to judge these matters, which is what the saints are called to do. And here's how we ought to think about those who are betrothed or engaged to be married. Look at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So Paul returns to what he has been saying. Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you. Remain as you are. And what Paul is doing here is that he is once again expressing his preference for singleness. This is similar to verse 8. Look at verse 8. It is good for them to remain single as I am. The Greek text simply reads, it is good that they remain as I am. And so when you look at this verse, you must understand that the choice is between getting married, and staying single. It's not about staying perpetually engaged. It's not about that. But Paul wants us to have, he wants us to have a solid biblical reason, and perhaps reasons, for choosing singleness. Now, we've already explored one reason, and that is God gives grace gifts to some. 
He empowers some people by His Spirit to exercise an unusual degree of self-control over their sexual desires so that they are not distracted by them, they are content, they don't feel the need to pursue marriage. But here He gives us another reason. He says, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, what is the present distress? Or as some translations will put it, the necessity or distress at hand. Now, some writers think that this refers to either a famine or a persecution that was going on at Corinth, some sort of social crisis. And so there were some who were probably saying, should I be thinking about marriage right now in the middle of all of this? Can I provide for a wife in these conditions? Is it wise? In view of these stressful times, do I want to be bringing children into the world? Can I feed them? On the contrary, if the church was experiencing persecution, there were probably some who were, who were thinking, you know, if I was single, it would be easier to run, easier to hide. It very well could be that there was something like that going on. But I don't think he's, that Paul is referring to some sort of social crisis. See, the church at Corinth seems to be well off. In chapter 10, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. He also talks about being invited for dinners. In chapter 11, there's enough wine going around for people to get drunk. In chapter 16, they're setting aside money to send to Jerusalem. No, Paul seems to be thinking more broadly. He's thinking eschatologically. In other words, he's thinking of marriage in view of the end times, in view of the second coming. Think of marriage, he says, in light of the future, in light of Christ's return. And the reason I'm inclined to think this way is because of the text. Look down at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers... It's always good, isn't it, when Paul explains what he means. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Look at verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. So in view of those things, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Don't seek to change your situation. This principle applies to everyone. Come back to verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. It's that same principle. Remain as you are. Remain with God. And so, are you engaged? Why don't you press pause and think if you really want to change your status from single to married? Paul says, think about that. Now, you might say, well, okay, I understand, Paul. I understand what you're saying. Marriage is not ultimate. Jesus is. And any decision to change my status should embrace the reality of marriage in light of the age to come. But, but let's say I agree with all of that. Let's say I affirm all of that and I still want to get married. Am I doing something wrong? Am I sinning? Look at verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So you're not sinning. Remember, Paul is not against change. He wants you to glorify God as you think about this life-altering decision. Now, in many of our cultures, marriage is so strongly advocated that it's almost a sin, and certainly weird, if you did not want to get married. And that is because that marriage is often seen as the ultimate human experience. Sometimes it's even worshipped. Just look at all the drama and the chaos that, that takes place in an Asian home if the children don't get married at a particular age. Or think about what certain parents might say in our context to their children. Just get married and everything will be okay. What do we do with these false prophets? 
Once you get married, your life will be all right. Once you get married, a great burden will be lifted off my shoulders and I can die in peace. Friends, all these statements reflect a very poor and idolatrous understanding of marriage. Even those predictable and cheesy lines in chick flicks and rom-coms demonstrate a horrendous understanding of marriage. I'm sure you've all heard of this one, you complete me. As though you're an incomplete human being without a spouse. No, you are complete in Christ. Your spouse is not your savior. Marriage was never meant to carry that weight. It cannot carry that weight, and it will let you down if you think of it that way. Now, that being said, it is the case that most people will marry. That's just reality, right? When Paul uh, talks about choosing elders in the pastoral episodes, how does, how does he begin those qualifications? If he's the husband of one wife, he assumes that older, mature men just normally, it'll, they'll be married. He just assumes that. So, it is the case that most people will marry, but what Paul is trying to get at is that he's telling us, marry for the right reasons. Marry for the right reasons. Glorify God in the way you think and make decisions because it matters. It matters because you are not your own. Do what truly counts. It is good to remain single. But if you're seriously thinking about marriage, have realistic expectations. Look at verse 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I would spare you that. Paul says, I know you think this is going to be exciting. You, you, you want to get married, you're engaged, but you need to have a realistic view of marriage. Now, when he says those who marry will have worldly troubles, he simply means you will have troubles in this world. Beloved, marriage is a union between two sinners. Sinners saved by grace, sinners being transformed by grace, but sinners nevertheless. And your marriage will be lived out in a fallen world with all the consequences of sin. You will have worldly troubles. You will sin against each other. You know, these days it's, it has become commonplace for couples to write their own wedding vows. But I think the traditional vows are far better because they remind us of reality, that there will be worldly troubles. And yet it is precisely in the midst of these troubles that the couple, with God's help, must hold on to each other for better and for worse, for richer, for poorer in sickness and in health. You will have worldly troubles. There are many responsibilities that come with being married. And carrying out those responsibilities, well, that's going to be very hard in a fallen world. Everyone who's married understands this. And we need to be honest and clear about this while discipling singles. Friends, everything from providing for a spouse, taking care of their needs, the needs of your children, disciplining your kids, navigating difficult in-laws, being faithful at home and work, scheduling your time, helping your kids with school, all of those are good things, good responsibilities, and they can be very hard and very exhausting in a fallen world. And there will be days when everything will seem to work against that. And Paul says, I would spare you of that. Now, we should not read into that. Paul is not saying, oh, marriage is so awful. Why would you want that? That's not what he's saying. No, his concern is a pastoral one. He's saying, I want you to have a realistic view of marriage and not some whimsical fantasy where you never lose your hair and your wife's makeup never fades. But here's a second lesson we ought to learn from this passage. Point number two. Consider remaining single because the time is short. The time is short. Look at verses 29 to 31. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What does Paul mean when he says the appointed time has grown very short? Well, what he means is this. Jesus Christ is coming soon. That hope, that living hope that we're looking forward to since the day of our conversion, that's drawing near. You know, Paul says something similar in Romans 13, 11 to 12. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Beloved, time is short. We will not live forever on this earth. And therefore, we must consider every decision we make including the decision to marry in light of the coming glory. It is at hand. It is at hand. Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection has inaugurated the new creation. We have already tasted of the powers of the age to come in our new birth, and we await the restoration of all things when Jesus Himself will usher in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's 2 Peter 3.13. And that means we ought to remember that marriage is an institution for this age. When the saints are resurrected and glorified and we dwell on the new earth in the presence of God, marriage will be no more. Matthew 22 verse 30. Marriage is temporary. It is a picture a type that points to the union of Christ and His people. And so if you desire to marry, think about that. You are entering into something that is temporary. Temporary. And this is a reality that doesn't just affect single people who are seriously thinking about marriage. It ought to affect every believer that the day is at hand. All of us are called to live in the light of eternity. And to help us understand that, Paul applies this extraordinary gospel truth to five areas, areas of our ordinary lives. So here's the first. From now on, he says, <clears throat> let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, just to be clear, he's not saying Husbands, neglect your wives. This can't be coming from a man who tells us in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. No, the key phrase here is, as though. As though. Live as though they had none. He's talking about a life that is not wife-centered, but Christ-centered. Paul is talking about our allegiance to Christ and our priorities as believers. Jesus says it like this in Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He doesn't mean that you should hate them literally. No, he means your love for him, for Jesus, must exceed all others. And it ought to show in practical ways. You should be able to see that. Or take Matthew 10, verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. doesn't mean that we should all go and commit suicide. No, it means we should not live for ourselves. We should live for Christ as though 
we didn't have a life of our own. Now, you might say, well, am I not serving Christ by serving my wife? Am I not obeying His Word? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. But friends, there will be times when instead of spending time with your wife, you might need to minister to someone else. Now, this does not mean you deprive your spouse or neglect your obligations, but it does mean that both of you will need to recalibrate your lives so that you find your joy and satisfaction in Christ and His purposes and His people. Now, you might say, well, pastor, that requires a very, under, very understanding wife, someone who understands this passage, someone who loves Jesus more than me, someone who I can sit down with and talk to about what our priorities are going to look like as a family, someone who wants the gospel to shine brightly through our marriage, someone who has a burden for the lost, someone who loves the church and who wants to invest into relationships that will last for eternity. And my answer to that is yes. Of course, yes. A thousand times yes. So don't rush into marriage. Make sure you marry this kind of person. Someone who shares your convictions and is willing to be obedient to the Scriptures and live a married life in, in light of eternity. Here's the second area of our lives that ought to be recalibrated in, in the light of eternity. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And friends, that means that no sorrow, no loss, no disappointment in this age should define you or should be seen as ultimate or final. Don't let earthly disappointments stop you from serving the Lord, from being faithful in your assignment. There is a time coming, and it is at hand, when God will wipe away our tears, and He will set every wrong right, and He will satisfy us with eternal joys. Single people, think about that. Marriage cannot give you those things. Thirdly, let those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Friends, the joys of this age, as wonderful as they are, joys including marital joys, will pass away. Fourthly, let those who buy as though they had no goods, all our acquisitions, our earthly possessions, our belongings will be gone. See, married people are sojourners in this world, just as single people are. So, contrary to what the culture tells us, we don't get married and settle down. No, we are like our father Abraham. We are journeying by faith, looking forward to that eternal city. And fifthly, let those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What does that mean? It means be heavenly-minded. Be heavenly-minded. It doesn't mean that you retreat from the world and become a monk. No, it means that whatever you do in this age, work, business, investments, buying land, building a home, hold on loosely to those things. Don't let them consume you. All of those things are on their way out. Look at the next verse. Why adopt this mentality? Verse 31, for the present form, the present schema of this world is passing away. As one author so aptly put it, when high seas are raging, it is not time for changing ships. When high seas are raging, it is not the time to change ships. Single people, have you thought about these things? If you're considering marriage, if not, please do so. The Holy Spirit wants you to. Lesson number three, consider remaining single so that you can be devoted to Christ without distractions. Consider remaining single so that you can be devoted to Christ without distractions. And by that I mean the kind of things that you will need to care about 
and rightly care about as a married person. Look at verses 32 to 34. I want you to be free from anxieties, literally free from cares. Now, does this mean that the single person has nothing to care about? No, as a member of a church, you have plenty to care about. No, he's talking about the cares that are unique to marriage. These are additional responsibilities. Look at the text. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, when Paul says that the married man or the married woman is anxious about worldly things, he doesn't mean sinful things. Nor is the word anxious speaking about a, a sinful anxiety that Jesus warns against. No, he means that they are they're concerned, these people are concerned with, with matters pertaining to this world, mainly the particular concerns of a marriage relationship, how to please your husband, how to please your wife, what do the scriptures say about that, how can I focus on that, those are good concerns to have. The interests are not wrong, did you notice that? The interests are not wrong, they are divided. And sometimes married people can end up neglecting some of these concerns. We sometimes forget that in addition to our obligations to one another, we also have obligations to other members we have been called to serve in love. Marital concerns, even good ones, can pull us away from being devoted to the Lord. You know, so often we can be like Martha, distracted with serving, a good thing, that we neglect the most important thing, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, shouldn't we please our spouses and serve the Lord? Shouldn't we do both? Yes, but it's hard. If I said it wasn't, I would be lying. And at the same time, it is a man's faithfulness to his wife and faithfulness in his home that qualifies him to serve as an elder. We shouldn't forget that either. Our interests are divided, and that raises some real practical problems. Anyone who's married knows this. You just can't decide to do something and just do it. You just can't decide to have someone over for a discipleship meeting without first checking with your spouse. Is there something going on at home? Maybe your spouse needs help with something. Maybe she is ill, she needs your care. Perhaps your kids need help with the project. There are many things that you can do for the kingdom, but you can only do so much. Your interests are divided. Ladies, you understand this as well, don't you? Oh, you would love to sit down for two to three hours undistracted with your Bible, wouldn't you? But you have to make do with 30 minutes because you have young kids who need your attention. You have to cook. There are chores that need to be done. There's a woman next door you've been wanting to meet and share the gospel and then you realize you've been so busy with house chores and the kids that you've been neglecting your husband and you feel torn. Your interests are divided. Of course, in all these situations, married people must learn to organize and schedule and prioritize and work things out, get wise counsel on how to be faithful in their present condition, in their present season of life, Christ calls us to faithfully serve Him. Let the married person be faithful in His assignment. But the point is, it's hard. It just is. And Paul says the single person can devote all his energy into focusing on his or her personal holiness and serving the saints without the unique concerns of marriage. Now, it may sound like Paul's trying to choke all the fun out of marriage. You know, he wants to show up for the engagement dinner with a stop sign. That's not his intention. Look at the next verse. He's concerned about their spiritual benefit. 
Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, your advantage, not to lay any restraint upon you. you know, that's an interesting choice of word. The word literally means putting a noose around your neck. Paul knows, I, I know what you're thinking, but I'm not doing that. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, to encourage what is proper or appropriate. He wants us to think rightly, to think Christianly, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Beloved, if you're single and you're considering marriage, whether you've never been married or you're engaged to be married or you've been divorced on biblical grounds or you're a widow, factor these things into your decision-making. Pray about this. Seek counsel from your elders. Paul says, the reason I am recommending singleness is this for this reason, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And friends, that's a very good reason to remain single, even if your culture thinks otherwise. So singleness is not boring, depressing, subhuman, or pathetic. The Holy Spirit says, there's a spiritual advantage here. I say this for your own benefit. I like how the New Living Translation puts this. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. That's a nice way to summarize it, isn't it? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, are you saying that married people are incapable of being devoted to the Lord? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it takes a tremendous amount of focus and energy because our interests are divided. Friends, that's just the reality of marriage. It's wonderful, but it's hard work. You know, if you want an example of how despite having divided interests, married people work immensely hard to be devoted to the Word and serve the Lord, just talk to the women who attend the women's Bible study. Just have a conversation with some of those women. Talk to their husbands. Ask them how, on one hand, they attend to their marital obligations and care for their children, and how, at the same time, they scheme together to take hold of opportunities to do what Jesus calls us to do, sit at His feet, equip themselves in the Word, grow in the faith, and serve the body. I'm always encouraged when I see married couples in our church scheming together, working together for the glory of God. Now, having said that, sometimes the best way for a single person to serve the Lord and to glorify Him is to get married. And that brings us to the fourth and final lesson we can learn from this passage. This is perhaps the most obvious one. A single person does well if he or she chooses to marry. It's not a sin. A single person does well if he or she chooses to marry. It is not a sin. Look at verses 36 to 38. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, what is this improper, inappropriate behavior? If his passions are strong, and it has to be, this refers to strong sexual desires, and the text suggests a situation where a man is unable to keep his desires under control, and he knows it. If anyone thinks so, the anyone here refers to anyone among the unmarried in verse 32. If he sees this, well, he must clearly repent of his behavior, ask the Lord's forgiveness, ask the forgiveness of his fiancée. We must not neglect what the rest of the Bible says about such behavior. But notice how realistic this text is. His passions are strong, and it has to be. Well, that's why he's getting married. Verse 9, do you remember? They cannot exercise self-control. They should marry. This is clearly someone who does not have the gift of singleness like Paul. And so, what does glorifying God look like in this state? What does remaining with God look like in this situation? Well, look at the text. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Now, you say, wait, 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 wait. I thought this passage was about remaining single. No. 
This passage is about the advantages of remaining single for the glory of God. This is not about remaining single for the sake of being single. And that is why the decision to remain single must take into consideration all these things that are mentioned in this passage. This requires careful consideration and prayer and counsel. Look at verse 37. But, on the other hand, whoever is firmly established in his heart, so this is a choice, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, so don't do this because of pressure, you may say, well, what's going on? Well, I don't know. Remember, people are writing to Paul and asking him about a specific situation that we don't know about. Being under no necessity, but having his desire under control. We saw this in verses 6 to 9. All Christians are called to pursue self-control, but God gives some people by His Spirit unusual self-control and contentment that they are not distracted by sexual desires. And Paul says, if you have that... Now, keep in mind, this is the opposite of strong passions, right? We just saw that verse. Strong passions, what's the opposite? having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So it's a choice not to marry the person you're engaged to in order to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, when the text says he has determined to keep her as his betrothed, it doesn't mean that she has to perpetually stay engaged, right? This guy's single and he's gone away. She has to permanently stay as his fiance. No, that's not what it means. It simply means he has determined to let her remain as she is, unmarried. She then needs to decide whether to marry or stay single. Now, you know that's the right way to read the text because of the way the next verse draws the conclusion. So, look at the next verse, verse 38. So then, so this is the conclusion, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, I want to make two comments. Number one, some versions translate this verse very differently, as though it's talking about a father giving his virgin daughter in marriage, and she being past her marriageable age. The Greek text is a little different, a little difficult to translate, but I do think that translating it that way reads a bit too much into the, into the text. The, the, there are perfectly good words for father and daughter that are not used in this text. Furthermore, look at verse 36 when it says, let them marry, that's a plural pronoun, let them, not her. It's a little odd construction if it's talking about a man and a daughter, right? But even if it's even if you look at the alternative translation, the principle remains the same. The principle remains the same, that it's a choice, you get your desires under control, and it's fine if you marry, and it's fine if you don't. Comment number two. Friends, what do you think about this phrase? He who refrains from marriage will do even better, will do even better. Now, at this point... If you're married and you're thinking, oh, look at that, Paul says singleness is better. I feel like I missed the boat on that one. I feel like I chose the less faithful option. Stop. That attitude is dishonoring to your marriage. It's dishonoring to your spouse and dishonoring to the Lord. So, what's your condition? Are you married? That's your assignment. Remain with God. Glorify Him. Don't covet another's assignment. You see, the words even better reflect Paul's preference for singleness. Throughout chapter 7, we've seen him honoring marriage and celebrating singleness. Both are equally blessed states in God's sight. You see, singleness and marriage are not conflicting states in the church. They should be both held up in honor. We should think Christianly about them and not culturally. And that means 
that we should not talk about marriage as though it is the height of human achievement. Nor should we talk about singleness as though it's a disease to be eradicated. Now, if you're hung up on those words, I know I was while studying this text, it is better than just look at verse 9. It is better to marry, he says. So this is not about glorifying singleness or glorifying marriage. It is about glorifying Christ in our singleness and in our marriages. Why? Because we are not our own. Jesus bought us. He redeemed us by His own blood. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be made alive in Him to glorify Him because He is greater than all earthly joys. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're wondering, how can these Christians take something so important as marriage, so fundamental to human society, and relativize it? And that is because we don't worship marriage, my friend. We worship the one to whom marriage points to, the giver of earthly marriage. You see, God gave us in marriage a picture of His love for His people, and we have spurned that love. And we have run away from Him, and we have loved other things. That's the essence of sin. But in His great mercy, that mercy that Paul speaks about in verse 25, in that mercy, in His mercy, He sent His Son to save us from our sins. He died on the cross for our sins and He rose from the dead so that we might be united to Him in a marriage that all earthly marriages point to. And when Christ returns, earthly marriage will be no more. And we are reminded of that truth. We are reminded of that future when we look at our singles. Because our singles are a walking picture of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. They remind us that true happiness and true blessedness are not found in marriage or children. True happiness and true blessedness is found in Christ. And that is why our greatest joy is not in our marriages or our singleness, but in Christ. All other earthly joys pale in comparison to Him. And friend, you too can know this joy if you repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Come to Christ, and no matter what situation you're in, the joy of the Lord can be your strength. So believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. But what about widows? That's another question that they asked Paul. What about widows? Now, talking about those who are betrothed, that's one thing. They haven't tasted of the joys of marriage. But the widows, don't they deserve to be happy? Shouldn't they get married once again for sure? And Paul says, not really. See, they need to think about this in the same way. Look at verses 39 to 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. He's talking about the covenant of marriage. Married people should not separate. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, this is her decision. She is free in Christ to be married if she wants. She shouldn't be pressured. If she does decide to marry, she should marry only a believer. And Paul says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Paul, Paul has a very different understanding of happiness, doesn't he? See, his understanding is cross-shaped. And that's how we should view happiness. And then he says this, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Once again, Paul is not saying singleness is morally superior to marriage. 
Now, we must understand that comparative term, happier, in the context of all that he has said. And that means happier with respect to what? Well, with, with respect to being free to be devoted to the Lord without distractions. This is His judgment. Notice, that's how He began in verse 25, talking about His judgment. Now He comes back to that full circle. This is His judgment. You know, there will be times when widows may choose not to marry, and that's a good thing. And there will be times when they choose to marry in the Lord, and that too is a good thing. In fact, there are times when Paul tells widows in 1 Timothy 5.14 that the godliest thing that they can do is to get married have children, and manage their households. And so I want to say a brief word to the widows in our congregation. Sisters, don't make a decision solely based on your age or what your culture might think, but think Christianly. Think what would please God. Think about your giftings. Think about your desires. Talk to your elders. And if you desire to marry, guess what? We will support you, we will love you, we will cheer you on. And if you decide to remain as you are, guess what? We will support you, we will love you, we will cheer you on. And then he adds this interesting line, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. I think he does this because there were probably some teachers at Corinth who were influencing the members, causing division. These people were claiming to be filled with the Spirit, and yet they were offering people counsel that was more cultural and less Christian. And so this is Paul exercising his apostolic authority, telling us that this is indeed the Christian way to think about these matters. This is how we apply the wisdom of the cross to singleness and marriage. Beloved, this is how we put on the mind of Christ. And so whether you pursue singleness or marriage, remain committed to Christ your Savior. He is the source of everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to lead the lives that you have assigned to us. May we walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And may we recognize the great privilege that we have been given to pursue the obedience of faith with brothers and sisters that Christ has purchased with his own blood. The saints with whom we will rejoice for all eternity. May our hearts be consumed with glorifying Jesus knowing fully well that you will sustain us till the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.